you would like to uh, turn in your Bibles, uh, we're going to be looking at two passages today uh, in, in, uh, from the text, and then you also have a handout here that we're actually going to be following along too. But the two passages are, are found in Luke 24 and Ephesians 1. Luke 24 is on page uh, 1219 in the Pew Bibles if you want to follow along. And the Ephesians 1 passage is going to be found on page 1342 in the Pew Bibles, 1219 and 1342. Today in many churches, uh, this is the beginning of Easter week, as it were, and uh, Palm Sunday is the day in which the Lord Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem for the final week of his life. And we are systematically studying through the book of Matthew, and in doing that, um, it doesn't keep with the church calendar. And so um, I actually preached on the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus into Jerusalem uh, about a month and a half ago. And, uh, and in our study of the book of Matthew, I'm not going to get to the resurrection for about two months from now, so, um, but next week I will be preaching on the, the resurrection and what Christ has done. We're going to try something different this week, though. We're going to look at something different. And so, but we are going to look at these two passages. So let's pray together. Father, we always want to pause before you as we study your word. And we just ask, Father, that you will bring your word to life for us. You will help us. Um, Father, we know that this Bible and this truth that you have embodied in it and given to us is so valuable, Father. And we just want to know more. We want to grow in it. We want to learn. And so help us, we pray. Help us to, through this study of the Bible today, help us to know you and to know what you have done and draw us closer to you, we pray. And bless us, we ask. We just need and call for your blessing now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've been asked recently by uh, many of you, because uh, uh, many we have many here who are new to the Christian faith, and uh, you're new to your Bible, and you sometimes, and so recently, several people have actually asked, either me or Jan or some of our discipleship leaders, you know, i confused by the Bible, like now, now Abraham, was he Paul's dad, and uh, you know, how do all these people, all these names come at me? And I don't know the story. I don't know how they fit in. And so today, what I'm going to try to do is literally preach the entire Bible in 20 minutes. I'm going to try to do this. I knew that we'd get that response, too, because my fellow elders just teased me in that room there. Uh, no, what we're going to do is we're going to do an oversweep of the Bible. And, uh, and I'm going to do this for a reason. I have a biblical example of this. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen does this in one sermon in the synagogue in Jerusalem. Uh, up to the point that he knew, to the coming of Jesus. But I want to do this because for those of you especially who are new to the Bible, I want to show you how the story unfolds. So we'll hit the major people very quickly. We'll hit them, uh, give you some background, and help you to understand so that you'll see them. I'm actually going to put a timeline up there. Uh, no, they don't entrust me to preach, uh, to sing around here, I'm sorry. 
Uh, they, they, but for some reason, they gave me this today. So here we go. This may be dangerous, but I'm going to try this. So we're going to actually put a timeline up here as the sermon goes on so that you can visualize it and you can see this. And what I'm hoping to do is give you a structure by which then for the rest of your Bible reading life, you'll have places where you, you see where things fit in and it will make more sense to you. But secondly, what we're going to do is we, we're going to study what I've entitled here the greatest story ever. We are going to study, we're going to take a sweeping look at the greatest story ever. And, it, and yet it's not a, a story story, it's the true story. Um, have you ever seen a movie where it says this movie is based on real life people or real life experiences? This Bible story is history. It's, the, it's many people's stories but it's, it's history, and so that's what we're going to be looking at. But it's also one story. And so, and this one story, this one account that makes up this Bible story, this gospel, answers the most important questions in life. So even though you kind of chuckled when I said I'm going to make this attempt, this is even more amazing that the most important questions in life are going to be answered this morning through this Bible story. Why does anything exist? How did we get here? What is the meaning of life? What is it all about? Who am I? Is there life after death? What does the future hold? What is God doing in this world? All of those questions are going to be answered in the Bible story as, it, as it's being unfolded before you. But finally, before we begin, I want you to understand this. The Bible is a story of many people and we're going to you're going to be introduced to many of them today but really in one sense the bible is actually telling the story of one person the entire bible is telling the story of one person and that is god the father son and holy spirit and even more specifically it tells the story of redemption that is in jesus and look with me in luke chapter 24 jesus has risen from the dead and two men are walking on the road to Emmaus, and they're amazed, and they say, yeah, and now the women show up and say he's risen from the dead. And look at verse 25. Jesus is walking with him, but they don't know that it's Jesus. And then he said to them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and entered to into his glory? Now, look, notice verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the, in, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, notice this, that Jesus sees the Bible and Moses and the prophets, the entire Old Testament, about to be about him. Then Jesus appears later on that day to the rest of his disciples. And uh, they, they, they're completely shocked. They're freaked out. And he, 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 even, he offers to eat in front of them to show them that he is a person. Look at verse 43. And he took it and he ate in their presence. He's not a ghost. He's eating. Ghosts don't eat. And that's what he's showing there. And then it says this, verse 44. And he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Now, notice this, the entire Torah, the entire law of Moses, all of the prophets, all of the Psalms are about me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And look at verse 46 then. Then he said to them, thus it is written, 
And thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And the repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And then he's telling them that they are to be witnesses to this. And so Jesus gave them the whole scope of scripture. In your handout that I've given you here, and one of the things I'd like you to do is just follow along because in this handout because we will read these passages. The John 5 passage, Jesus says this to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. These are they which testify of me. This is the story of Jesus, okay? And we're going to look at that story now. And so we're going to begin at the beginning. We're going to begin at creation. Now, what I'd like you to do uh, first is turn to the book of Ephesians. Because actually, the beginning is not creation. Creation is a beginning. In the beginning, God created. That's true. But we're actually going to begin this story before creation. We're going to begin this story in, in the billions and trillions of years, in time before time even began, in time before creation, when there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because the Bible teaches that in before time began, and then all through this history, God is working out a plan. God made a plan. God made a plan that, that would involve all of creation and all of history and even a new creation. So, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, it says this, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things out according to the counsel of his will. God takes counsel with his own will. God determines and decides this plan. And God did this before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So there we're going to prehistory. Before the world is even founded, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And so before the world was even began, God chose us, God, God predestined us to become his children. God had this whole plan that he was going to unfold. And so you can begin to see that some of the questions of why, why the world, why does this exist, why some of the big questions are starting to fall into place. The Bible also tells us uh, in, in, that there is a rebellion that took place before the world began, a rebellion in heavenly places, and that's where Satan and, and the demons and that come from, the, a rebellion in heaven. They're cast out of heaven. And so you have this, this, this cosmic sort of warfare that's going on that immediately begins to find expression in earth once earth is created. So if you go to your handout here, you have the very first. Uh, you have the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis one one. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we see in the Bible, and here in your timeline, I've given you creation. And so God creates the world. And there, of course, you know the story. God creates Adam and Eve. And the Bible tells us something interesting. Look at the next verse. It says Genesis 1.26. So we're right in the first chapter of the Bible. Then God said, let us. Do you notice that plural? God said, let us make man in our image. Now, he's not talking to angels. Man is not created in the image of angels. 
Let us make man in our image. This is the triune God speaking amongst and intercommunicating with himself, one God in three persons, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over the earth and over all and every, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God makes Adam and Eve. He makes them in his image. He makes them male and female. They're created in his image, and they're in charge of the entire earth. And they're in a garden, the Garden of Eden. And it is an absolutely beautiful place. And they fellowship with God and they talk with him at the end of, at, at the end of each day. And they go out and they serve God and, and, and such. And there's two trees of all the trees. There's two special trees in the Garden of Eden. One is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God says, I don't want you to eat of that yet. I don't want you to touch that. I want you to obey me and stay away from that tree. And another one is called the tree of life. And if you eat of the tree of life, you live forever. And so then the Bible teaches that Satan comes amidst, in, 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 in Genesis chapter 3, Satan, so that we're only in Genesis chapter 3 at this point, Satan comes in and deceives Eve. And then she, she involves Adam and this, and then Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they're not supposed to eat of. They immediately recognize that they're in something of an infancy stage and they recognize that they're that they're that they're 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 naked and they recognize these things and they sin and they fall against God and God then comes and judges them lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. And so God comes and he, and he brings judgment upon them and he casts them out of Eden. But before he does that, God makes an amazing promise. And here's what we're going to keep interweaving in this. God promises that the seed of the woman, a seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. The serpent is going to bite his heel and hurt him, but he's going to crush the serpent's head. And this is the first promise. The first promise. only two people on the earth right now. And this is the first promise that Jesus Messiah is coming to destroy Satan. They're kicked out of Eden. And sin begins to have this terrible impact upon them. In fact, they have a baby, Cain. Then they have a baby, Abel. And Cain kills Abel. The very first family, there's a murder of one son murdering another son. And you see this impact of sin. And the Bible goes on to say that sin infects the entire world to such an extent that God sends a flood. And he sends this flood, and this flood destroys the world, and, he and yet he preserves a people. And so there's a judgment, and yet God preserves a people in this ark, and it's Noah and his family. And Noah and his family then once again, they begin to populate the world. But once again, sin is still evident. The reign of sin still works out. And at one point, people try to build the Tower of Babel. And that's where this comes in, to, to reach God. And God must divide them and separate them, give them different languages because they're so dangerous when they all organize themselves together. And, that's the, that's, and, and, and years and years and years and years and years go by. And then all of a sudden, in Genesis chapter 12, the end of 11, verse 12, God begins to focus on just one man, one man, one of the most important men in the scriptures, and his name is Abraham. God comes to this one man, and he says to this one man amazing promises. I am going to make you the father of nations. I'm going to bless the world through you. Through you, everybody is going to be blessed. I am going to be your God, and you will be my people. You, Abraham, and all of your children, all of your people, all of your seed. Now, Abraham has a problem. His wife's infertile. 
And so he's like, God, how in the world is that going to work out? And God says, I'm going to do it. I'm God. I'm going to do it. I'm going to multiply your seed, and it's going to be multiplied. And Abraham believes God, and God justifies him. He saves him. He believes God, and God justifies him, the Bible says. Now, these promises, though, Abraham recognizes right away are much bigger. It's not just tons of children. It's not just the land. This land is going to be used. Abraham recognizes that a seed coming from him is the seed, the very the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that's what the book of Galatians identifies. Abraham recognizes that not only will his people inherit this little property of land called Israel, but they are going to inherit the entire world. Abraham is looking for something eternal, the Bible tells us. And so all of that is wrapped up in his life. And so Abraham, by God's power and grace, Abraham gives, uh, God gives Abraham a child, Isaac, okay? And then Isaac has a child named Jacob, and that's how this, this, this factors in. Now, God is working through this because Abraham tried on his own and had Ishmael, and God says, no, not Ishmael, Isaac, coming from your, that's who your seed is. And then, and then Isaac and Rebekah have twins in her womb, Esau and, and Jacob, and God says, not Esau, Jacob. That's why he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is taking this promised people down. But the whole time, the seed that this is actually moving toward is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the seed who is going to rule over and bless the entire world. And so these people have been brought together. These, the, this, this family has been brought together with the purpose of a nation developing. And out of that nation will come Messiah. And so the, Jacob then, and he, he has 12 sons. And those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and that's parallel, that becomes parallel in the New Testament with Jesus' 12 apostles. And that's brought together for us in the book of Revelation. And the, 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 the most famous, as it were, of these 12 sons is Joseph. And you know the story of the coat of many colors and, and the favoritism. And so Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers. And Joseph then eventually becomes the, 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 basically the right-hand man of Pharaoh in Egypt. And then famine comes on the land. And these, this promised family, this promised family who identify themselves as being under Abraham, as it were, through circumcision that God gives them, these people go into Egypt. And they go into Egypt, and Joseph there, and he's a big shot, and Joseph provides them with a nice place to stay, and they're, they're there, and they're having a great time there. Now, before we leave this, Jacob, one of his sons, his name is Judah. And Judah, as Jacob is blessing his children, he's old, he's dying, he's blessing each one and putting his hands on them, praying for them. When he gets to Judah, he says to Judah, a lion is coming out of your tribe who will be ruler forever. And this, of course, is Jesus. And it's referred to, he's referred to as the lion out of the tribe of Judah. Well, they're in Egypt. They're there. They're just doing their thing. And 400 years pass. 400 years of just being in Egypt, working, raising babies, growing, multiplying, and that's it. No miracles, no word from God, no nothing. See, sometimes people feel like every time they say, uh, you'll get this all the time, people say, in the Bible, there's miracles all the time. Why don't we see them today? That's not true at all. 
That's not true at all. There's, there's vast centuries that go by where there's no miracle. There's no, there's no, there, there's no, no actual. Now, God in his providence is always working. God is blessing. But there's not. And so we have this, this silence for almost 400 years. And then the Bible then bring, introduces this one, the next, one of the next most important men in the Bible after Abraham is Moses. Well, here after the 400 years, is the, the, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, are, are multiplying and they're seen as a threat and they're an ethnic minority and yet they're, 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 they're hating upon them, uh, the people, and they're persecuting them and they're now in slavery and they keep remembering the promise to Abraham. They keep remembering and they keep crying out to God and crying out to God and then God raises up a deliverer by the name of Moses. And it's, it's a wild story. Moses is put in a basket and he goes and he's raised by Pharaoh's daughter and he's raised in the royal household and then he, and then he goes out into the wilderness and learns how to be a shepherd and then he meets God and God reveals himself as a holy God a burning bush and God says Moses get your shoes off I'm a holy God you're in a dangerous place because I'm so holy and, and you're so sinful and God begins to show himself and reveal himself to Israel for who he actually is well beyond what he had revealed himself to Abraham and Moses becomes a deliverer, and God delivers the people out of Egypt, sends all these plagues upon them, and delivers the people out of Egypt. And that becomes a symbol of God's deliverance and God's power, brings them out through all of these powerful miracles, and then he meets with them upon Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law. And the law enables them and establishes an entire nation. It, teaches, it, it, it establishes them as a nation. It establishes their religion. It gives them the moral directives that God has given them. The Ten Commandments are given at that point. And an entire nation is being established there. That includes directives on a tabernacle, which is a big tent where God is going to meet with them. And a holy of holies where only the high priest can go. And sacrifices where lambs are sacrificed to restore forgiveness and, and, and reconciliation with God through sin. And all of this is, is, is elaborately played out. As they wander through the nation, uh, the, through the wilderness, God is providing manna out of heaven, bread that comes out of heaven for them. And all of these things are pointing to Christ. Christ will eventually become the temple. Christ will be, eventually become the high priest. Christ will be, eventually become the, the sacrifice uh, for sin. Christ, even the, even the manna that comes out of heaven, look at your handout. Jesus is speaking in John 6 and says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. And if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I shall give him is my flesh, and which I shall give for the life of the world. I'm the manna from heaven. At one point, the people in Israel sinned, and these serpents or these snakes, think scorpion or rattlesnakes, came and bite them. And when they bite them, they, they start to swell up and die. And, and, and God has Moses put a bronze serpent on a, on a stick. And if they look at that bronze serpent, they'll be healed. And so this, it's kind of a strange Old Testament thing. You get bit, and then you look, and then you get healed. But then in the New Testament, Jesus says this in John 3, 14. There it is in your handout. As Moses was lifted up, in the, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, this is Jesus speaking. Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And if you read verse 15, it says, and all who believe in him will not perish. And then, of course, then John 3, 16. And so this, this wonderful king, uh, I mean, this wonderful leader, Moses, comes. And, and then he brings him right to the edge of the promised land, and he sends in 12 spies. 
From, one from every tribe. Twelve spies go in. There's, there's, a, there's all kinds of people here. And they're going in. And the spies go in. And ten of them come back out. And they're trembling like babies. <laughs> they're big. They're huge. They're giants. We'll never do this. This is crazy. Why did we even come out here? This was stupid. And two guys come walking out. They're all ready and excited. Let's go, man. Let's go. And their name is Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua and Caleb... Those two men, they, uh, they're, they're like ready to go. They say, we can do this because we have God. We have God. They're nothing. They're nothing. We'll, we'll just go traipsing in there. And the nation said, no, no, no. They're ready to stone Joshua and Caleb. No. And so the nation turns away, and they come back into the wilderness for 40 years. In fact, God judges them and says, everybody will die. The only two people of this present living nation that's going to go in are the adults is Joshua and Caleb. Everyone else will die. And they do. They die in the wilderness. And of course, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. And so you see all of these ties. Well, then Joshua eventually leads them into the promised land, takes them in, and they enter into the promised land, and they're there. And as they're there, he divides up the promised land and gives them to each one of the tribes. And each tribe has this big section of land. And they live there for, they live there for, for a, a long period of time, actually. And, and, and they, they, they continue to follow the God of Abraham. They have their tabernacle. They have this thing going on. And, and nations from outside come and try to beat them up every once in a while and to attack them. And God raises up leaders. He raises up leaders. They're called judges. And there's Gideon, and there's Samson, and there's Jephthah, and there's, there's Ehud, and there's, there's Deborah, and Barak, and uh, Balak. I mean, and they, 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 God raises them up and delivers the people through these people. And then once they're delivered, they go back, and they're pretty much governed by family and tribe and things like that, and, uh, and continue to worship God. And then in the midst of this, it focuses on this woman named Hannah. And again, she's struggling with fertility. It's interesting how many of these folks are struggling with fertility. She comes to God and she prays that she could have a child. And she says, if I have a child, I'm going to dedicate him back to you. And she does. She has a man named Samuel. And Samuel becomes this very important prophet and judge and such, that the last one. And as Samuel is leading the people and he's recognized, the people demand a king. They demand a king. And so Samuel says, no. God has been leading you. God has been guiding you. When you need a leader, God raised it up. No, trust God. No, no, no. They said, we want a king. All the other nations have king. We want a king. We want a king. And so Samuel says, okay. Okay. God says, you know what, Samuel? Cool. I'll, I'll give them the king they want. And so God sends them. Uh, God, the, the, there's this man named Saul. And Saul is really big, really tall, really handsome. Like one of these guys. But he's an absolute nincompoop, okay? And so he, he reminds me of these Hollywood movie stars, okay, who big handsome dudes come walking in. And yet as soon as they open their mouth, it's like, dude, who, who's going to listen to you? And that's what Saul was. Saul was a wicked, he was just a bad king. He was inept. He was, he, he, he. And eventually he rebels against God. God tells him to do something and Saul doesn't obey God. He does it what he wants to do. He follows the people. And Samuel says, God is done with you. God rejects you as king. And Samuel walks away, and Saul grabs his robe and rips it like this to bring Samuel back, and he rips off a chunk of the robe. And Samuel says, God's ripped the kingdom from you. 
And Samuel then says, okay, God, what do you want? And Sam, God says, hey, I got, I got you a new king. Go find him. And he goes to find this new king. He says, one of the sons of Jesse. And so Jesse's there. And he says to Jesse, hey, I come to anoint the new king. And uh, show me your sons. And all these big dudes come striding out. Like just because Jesse has all these, all these sons. It's this massive, like almost football team. So they look like the front line of an NFL team. And God says, nope, 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 nope. And Samuel's like, what, what? And finally, all of a sudden, no, no, no. And they go, and Samuel turns to Jesse and says, Jesse, is this it? Is this all your sons? It's an impressive lot here, but is this it? And uh, Sam, Jesse said, no, there's one more, little David. He's out there. He's out there with the sheep playing his harp. And, 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 and he said, well, bring him in. And little David comes traipsing in with his little harp. He's a cute little guy. And God says, that's him. And Samuel says, okay. And Samuel anoints this little guy, David. And then, of course, the battle comes with the Philistines, and little David shows up at the battlefield by this time, and, and, he, and he takes his, his, his sling, and he slays Goliath, and all of a sudden, Samuel and these guys recognize God's with this kid. God's, God's here. God's got this. Saul recognizes it, too, and I'm not going to go into details. Jonathan's doing this, but God raises up this man, David, and David is an extremely important man. David, then, is the man after God's own heart. David loves God. He's he writes most of our psalms. And David is a man who lives for God, wants to glorify God and serve God. And David becomes the model of a righteous and godly king. And the kingdom is established under David. And he grows in power and might. And, and God uses him in a powerful way. And, and that is really seen as the golden age of Israel under David and his son Solomon. And David one time is sitting in his temple, and he's saying, you know what? The tabernacle is still a tent. I want to build a beautiful temple. Why should I be in a temple and God be in a tent? I want to build this. And God says, no, you're not going to do that, David. You've got too much blood in your hand. You're not going to do that. But God says, but I'm going to do something for you, David. I'm going to bring a seed out of your I'm going to bring a child out of you, and that child is going to be a king forever of a kingdom that will reign forever. And, of course, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. Of course, David's not perfect, and he sins, and he sins grievously. And he sins with Bathsheba, and, 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 and it becomes, his, his life becomes a mess after that, literally a mess. But God is gracious and good, and God forgives him. And in a strange providence, he marries Bathsheba after or organizing the murder of her husband, they have a child named Solomon, and Solomon is, starts off great. He asks for wisdom. God gives him wisdom. Book of Proverbs, many of that comes from Solomon. Uh, and he builds the temple. He builds the temple. And, uh, and, and he builds this beautiful temple, and God comes and arrives. But Solomon has the same weakness David has, and that's his affinity to beautiful women. And uh, Solomon gets involved with these foreign wives, and his life doesn't end very well either. These guys are not Messiah. These guys are not Jesus, okay? And then when Solomon dies, the kingdom divides. The kingdom divides into Israel and Judah. The, the, the ten tribes become Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And then we go through a series of kings, all these kings, all these kings, all these kings. Some of them are good. Asa, Josiah, Uzziah, Joash. There's some really good kings there, really good godly guys. But a lot of them are bad especially in Israel. And the no most notorious is Ahab and his diabolical wife, Jezebel. 
And uh, they kind of topped the list of bad guys. Uh, the FBI 10 most wanted, those are two of them. And, uh, and the danger always is, is this foreign god thing. Is people following after pagan gods and believing the basically the worldview of the world. Same problem today that the church has. And, and Baal worship became very big deal. And the nation is just about to all be seduced into Baal worship and into paganism. And Israel was supposed to be kept together. That's why they had the dietary laws. That's why they, did, they, they, they were kept separately. That's why they did separate things, to keep them separate, to keep them preserved as a nation until Jesus arrives. And it's almost about to be destroyed, and God starts raising up these very powerful, amazing prophets. Elisha and Elijah become very important in this. And they, 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 they bring the nation back. They bring the nation back. And sometimes there's great miracles. And these prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of these prophets begin to rise up. And these men are not fortune tellers. Don't think of them as fortune tellers. Don't think of them, if you go on YouTube now and you, 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 you bring up some prophets, ugh, it's scary. Just, those people are weird. That's not what this is. These were godly men who took the word of God and applied it to the people and called them to faithfulness to God. Most, you can think of them most, more like preachers today who applied the word of God. But then they also had visions and they saw the future and they saw Jesus coming. And that was an important thing. But the people continue to rebel. They rebel and they rebel and they rebel. And in, and in uh, 17, uh, 722 B.C., Israel, the northern tribes, are attacked by Assyria, sent off into, into exile, never to be seen from again. Those are the lost ten tribes of Israel. The Mormons even have this mythology that, that that's who they are, and this, it's crazy. No, they're gone. God judges them. They're gone. And then... In 586, in 586, about 150 years later, Judah is also taken by the Babylonians into captivity. This is where Daniel uh, comes into the story. Esther comes into the story, trying to be faithful in Babylon. And then God brings them back, and they return. They return, and another temple is built. This is where Nehemiah and Ezra. Ezra and, 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 and the, the people are restored. They're restored back again because Messiah has to come from these people. And then the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. Look in your handout. There's two statements here. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. These are the, this is the last book of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the, ear, the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth from curse. I'm, I'm jumping ahead because I'm running out of time here. Elijah, Elijah's coming, and the great and mighty one is coming. Messiah's coming. The Old Testament ends, and there's 400 years of silence. <clears throat> silence. No prophets, no word of God, no Elijah. And then in 5 B.C., around 5 B.C., around that time, there's another infertile couple. And Zechariah, this old man, is in there worshiping. He's, at the, he's the priest that day, and he's offering prayers, and an angel comes and says, you're going to have a son. You and Elizabeth are going to have a son, and you're going to name him John, and he's going to prepare the way. And Jesus points him out as being the Elijah of Malachi. And then... Zechariah and Elizabeth have this child, and in the meantime, 
an angel comes to this teenage girl and says to her that Gabriel comes to her and says, you're going to have a child. And you're not, she says, how can I? I'm not even married. I mean, I have a man. She says, it's going to be miraculous. It's going to be a miraculous birth. And your child is going to be called the son of David and the son of God and Christ the Lord. And so you have the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, you now know this story. Here he is. He has come. And he says that he is one who is greater than the temple. He says that he is the high priest. Jesus is the high priest. He is the lion out of the tribe of Judah. He is the manna that comes out of heaven. He is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist looks at him and says, he is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. All of this Old Testament reality finds its fulfillment in Jesus. He is the Messiah. He says, if you see him, you see the Father. He is God. He says, if you, I've come to save. I've come to lay down my life for sinners. And he says, and the proof that I'm going to give you is I'm going to rise from the dead. And he's taken and he's crucified upon the cross and he's killed. And then he rises again from the dead. And he meets with his apostles. And he says to his apostles, and there you have it in Matthew 28. I'll summarize it for you. Go into all the world and tell the people the good news. He says, but before you go, Acts chapter 1, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and is poured out upon them. And they're given power, and they begin to go, and they go around the world establishing the gospel. They start in Jerusalem, and then they go to Judea, and then they go to Samaria, and then they go to the Gentiles, and they begin to preach the gospel and preach the gospel and preach the gospel, and they have, they have, they have challenges against them. And one of the challenges against them is, this, is a Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus, and he hates them, and he tries to stop them. And then in Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus is converted, and he becomes Paul, one of the apostles. And Paul and they begin to establish churches and build churches. And Paul starts writing letters. And that's where Romans and Galatians and Colossians and Ephesians all come from. And then Peter begins writing letters. And they're all writing letters and they're giving apostolic doctrine. And those letters are being put together. And that's how we get a Bible. And now we've moved beyond Bible history in one sense. We're into the history of us. And one of the main things that happens at this point is that God comes and he destroys Jerusalem, and he destroys the temple, and the temple ceases to exist because Jesus has come. There's no need for it. And Israel does not, is not organized as a nation, is not together as a nation, and there is no temple. There's no temple till today. There is no temple now. And Israel has only been gathered together as a, as a, as a political entity in 1948. And so up at that time, there's no... Why? Because... The church is here. The people of God are now, are, are now an expanded people of Jew and Gentile. And they're moving forward. And the church is the temple. And Christ is the high priest. And, 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 and this living temple is being built. And this gospel is going out. And it's going out into all the world. And that's where men like Barnabas and Timothy and Titus and Priscilla and Aquila and Phoebe and Silas. And all of these people are out there sending out the gospel. And the kingdom is moving and moving and growing and growing and growing. And you have this spread of the gospel. This spread of the kingdom of God. God in all the world. And that's where we find ourselves today. 
That's what's going on today. And the Bible says that this kingdom, this kingdom is going to continue to advance and grow. And like a mustard seed, it's going to grow and grow and grow and expand and expand. But at the same time, the rebellion of the world is going to expand and expand. And an intensification of this battle is going to take place. And these two kingdoms are going to go to war until at the end of the age, the end of the world, this intense battle grows so intense that even and, and of all the antichrists that come throughout all of the ages, a, a, a serious one comes and great damage is done and it's as if the church is about to be destroyed and then the Lord Jesus Christ appears. He appears from heaven and he comes again and he judges the world and he casts out the demons. He casts out Satan and the Bible ends with a new heavens and a new earth and a new Eden and there's the tree of life and they eat of it and they live forever and ever and ever. And that's the Bible story. That's the Bible story. So let's just draw a few lines of application. Number one, why did God do this? Why did God sit back before the world was even created and come up with this plan? Why this plan? And the answer is simple. For his own glory. God did this for his own glory. God did this to show forth his glory. Think about it. I'm going to create a universe. Light years in, uh, uh, in distance galaxies and stars. I'm going to create all that. What does that show for? The glory of his power. The glory of his majesty. The glory of his, of his, of his greatness. I'm going to create a world. And this world is going, to be, is going to be positioned in just such a perfect location. It's going to be positioned so that the heat and the cold are exact, exactly straight. And, and this world is going to have life and it's going to have trees and it's going to have animals and such. If I move it this way, it's going to be as hot as Venus and it's going to be 800 degrees Fahrenheit. If I move it this way, it's going to be as cold as Mars and everything will freeze instantly. I'm going to keep it right here and it's going to orbit around the sun and I'm going to make people in my image and I'm going to make this beautiful. What is that? The glory of his created, the glory of his power, the glory of his beauty. Every tree, every bird, every cell shows forth the glory and I'm going to do it through my son to show the glory of my son and I'm going to give it to him as an inheritance, all for the glory of God. But the biggest thing is this. And if you're still open to Ephesians 1, look at verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace. God did this whole plan to show forth something about him that can only be shown in a fallen world that he will save and deliver. And that is grace. In God, in the infinite, amazing God, there is this attribute of love and grace, this, this concern and genuine, deep love for people who don't deserve this love, this love that is so powerful and so great that it comes upon the unlovable, the unloving, the sinners, the wretched, the ugly, those who deserve wrath. He pours out this grace and love. And, and that grace was not seen clearly in his creation when he makes his beautiful creation or in the angels when he makes these beautiful angels. And even when the angels fall, he judges them. He doesn't express grace toward them. How do you see grace? How do you see grace? You see grace when Adam and Eve rebel against him and he says, I'm going to send a seed that's going to deliver you. You see grace when you see a nations that, that, that war and that hate and you see ugliness and you say, God, I'm sending my son to die for you. You see grace when, when, when Abraham is supposed to kill Isaac and God says, no, no, stop, spare your son. And then Romans tells us that God spared not his own son for us. 
God giving his son, God loving us, and God showing us his amazing love to us, to ungodly people. That's why God did this, to show forth the glory of his grace. That's why we have history. That's why we have wretched sin. That's why we have deliverance. That's why we have a cross, to show forth the glory of his grace. And then let me ask you this then in closing. Look at the verse again, verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. I don't like that translation, so I'm going to translate it literally for you. By which he graced us in the beloved. By which he graced us in the beloved. Dear ones, have you been graced by God? Has God broken into your life and brought his love and his salvation? Has God opened your eyes? And you saw for the first time the cross and Christ and the Savior and salvation. Has God enabled you to to see and to believe and to run into his arms? Has God given you grace? Has God entered into your life? Then you're in the story. The story is about you. This story is what God is doing in your life. And what should we respond? How should we respond? We should respond with love and worship and praise that, oh God, in a sinful fallen world in rebellion against you, you graced people and you graced me. Thank you, God, that you graced me. Thank you, God, that no matter, no matter how things are playing out for me in this world, I may not be the smartest, I may not be the richest, I may not be the most beautiful, I may not be the most healthy, I may have struggles, but you have graced me. You have graced me. Oh, God, you've been so good to me. You have graced me. Dear ones, that's who we are as God's people. Meditate upon this. Search this out. And let this form your identity. I am one of God's graced people. I have been saved. I am one of the saints. I am one of God's holy people. This is who I am. And live that out in your life. Think that through in your life. Your talk should reflect his grace. The way you live, the way we carry ourselves, the way we dress, the way we act, the who we are, how we do life should all reflect, I have been saved by God's grace. I have been made his child. I have been made a saint. I have been forgiven. I have been given of the Holy Spirit. I am going to be one of those who in the new heavens and the new earth will reign in the glory of a resurrected body that will reflect the glory of the resurrected body of my own Savior, Jesus. Live like it. And then finally, dear friends, this should form our outlook. And you know what our outlook should be? You know what our outlook on life should be, dear friends? It should be a resilient, think of that word, a resilient, tough hope. Hope. God's not done, dear friends. He raised up his son Jesus from the dead and he's coming again to make an all new world. He's going to restore this creation. It's going to be all new again. And he's going to bring justice. Right now in Myanmar, right now in the Ukraine, women are getting raped. People are getting their hands bound behind their head and they're getting shot. Families are getting destroyed. God's going to bring justice. God's going to make it right. God's going to hold people to account. Nobody gets away with anything. And the truth will reign. Nowadays, there's lies here, lies there, deceptions here, deceptions there. You turn on the news and you think, what am I in, some kind of movie of the absurd? This is crazy. 
That's not going to be forever, dear friends. Jesus is coming and bringing truth, and truth will reign. Goodness will win out, not evil. The church will triumph. And dear friends, this needs to transform us, and this needs to be foundational for us until we get this resilient, tough hope. Hope. It's going to be good. It's coming. Christ is coming. It's going to be new. It's going to be made right. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be great. And there should be people running around this world in the midst of genuine, sober-minded understanding of what's going on, filled with hope. He's coming. He's coming. This world is going to end well. And I'm not going to lose my joy and my hope. It's going to be tough and resilient. We're about to sing a song, dear friends. And that song is How Sweet and Awesome. And one of the lines of this song says, Oh, God. It's so nice to be here with your people and feasting on your word. But why was I a guest? Why am I here? Oh, God, I know I'm here simply and purely because of your grace. You've graced me. Have you been graced by God? If you haven't, if you're sitting here today a lost person, I have good news for you. Good news for you. Today is the day of salvation. Jonathan's right. Jesus may come this afternoon, and then it will be the day of judgment. But right now, it's the day of salvation. It's the day of go and tell them and invite them and bring them in. Do you want to be graced? Do you want to know this God of grace? He's inviting you to come. He's inviting you to turn from your sin, come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and there you'll find grace and forgiveness and a fresh start and a fresh life, and he will adopt you, and he will justify you, and he will make you his. Today is the day of salvation. Don't let it pass. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you and we worship you. That all of life's questions are answered by your gospel. By you, by your love, by your plan. And Father, we just pause right here and say, who are we that we have been included in this gracious plan? But you have been so good to us. Thank you. We thank you, we praise you, that you spared not your own son for us, and that we have been forgiven, adopted, graced, and we will be rulers and lords and heirs of a new heavens and new earth. Make us, give us tough hope, we pray. We pray this all in Jesus' name.